0: This is PolyOptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King.
1: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. PolyOptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, 43 and 41 we're welcoming special guest co-host, Kevin Sullivan, former White House communications director, who is back at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue for the official portrait unveiling of George W. Bush last week. We'll hear all about what happened in the East Room. You'll be hearing more from Kevin on this show throughout the summer. Then we're talking with Jerry Weintraub, legendary producer of such films as Karate Kid and Ocean's 11, 12, and 13. Now he's turned to documentaries, premiering 41 about his good friend George Herbert Walker Bush, next week on June 11th on Home Box Office on HBO. But first, we welcome the aforementioned Mr. Sullivan to Polyoptics. Kevin, thanks for coming up
2: to New York to spend some time with us. Thanks for having me, Josh.
1: Uh, You were back at the White House last week for the unveiling of your boss's portrait. How did it feel to walk back through the walls?
2: You know, it was it was uh, it was great. We had a great turnout, which was so nice to see everybody. But the thing that I'll remember, I think about it most, was was walking back up to the to the gates for the first time, for me personally, in three and a half years. Carl uh, Rove was was in the posse. I was walking in with Dana Perino, some others, and the White House staffer who greeted us looked at us and said, "Welcome back," and the warmth was was apparent. It and, and that continued throughout the day. The hospitality shown by by the president and Mrs. Obama uh, was, was real and just felt great. It was great to be back. The place hasn't changed that much, uh, but it was a real nice event and, and uh, a thrill to get to be there.
1: How big was the audience?
2: Jam packed, uh, SRO crowd in the East room. And, uh, which is, of course as a, as a great event, man, that's exactly, uh, you know, that's exactly how you, how you want it.
1: Um, and what was the sort of criteria for invites? Obviously a former communications director gets invited, Rove gets invited. What, yeah, if, I think what it, was sort of the crowd?
2: I think it was, uh, you know senior staff assistants to the president uh, cabinet members and then some staffers that directly served uh, Mrs Bush and and uh, and her team in the in the east wing cuz her portrait was unveiled as well
1: I guess for some reason it takes three years to paint a portrait uh, of, a, of a former president and get it hung up in the White House. What's your sense of what uh, the 43rd president has been up to since leaving
2: and since your, day, your last day of work, January 20th, 2009? Right. Well, he, he promised President Obama his silence, and he has certainly lived up to that. He has not weighed in, or as he said when he was leaving, he won't see me throwing grenades over the, over the fence because it's not helpful, and because an ex-president doesn't have the information, the intelligence that the sitting president has, so it's just not, not a not a productive thing. And of course, he 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 did a lot of media interviews when his book came out, uh, you know, a year and a half or so ago. Uh, but other than that, he is focused on wounded warrior fundraising and and building the uh, the presidential center that will open on the campus of SMU in April of. Of uh, next year. Have you
1: been involved in any of the discussions about what's going to go into the content and the ideas that behind the, the exhibits for the president's life?
2: I've kept up uh, on the. There's a series of regular conference calls, and there's some some email that gets sent around. So I, I know it's a. He has a robust policy agenda that's really already underway, focusing on a few areas: women's issues in Afghanistan, education is one. Freedom agenda, of course, is another one. He's already had a pretty impressive slate of of uh, speakers come in there and and some forums that they've held. So it'll it'll be uh, it'll be a uh, combination of the museum and the presidential library plus a living breathing active uh, policy center and we we've had on this program a few weeks ago Nancy Gibbs author of the president's club who
1: wrote that book along with Michael Duffy of Time magazine and we they look very closely at the the lives of former presidents uh, and those that are still living today Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush you could break it down along party lines between who's been an activist ex-president and who is not. You haven't always welcomed Jimmy Carter's activism, or sometimes Barack Obama doesn't welcome Bill Clinton's uh, hey. uh, activism. But George H.W. Bush and his son uh, have been sort of below radar. You see President, the first President Bush coming up uh, when asked by uh, the president to do fundraising for disasters, and he he's very much involved in his library. But w- you you give an ex president a few years to kind of get their bearings. But if you could project out ten years or so, based on what you know of of the forty third president, what kind of a member of the president's club will George W. Bush eventually become? Do you think?
2: Well, he'll be very collegial, and he'll be very supportive of whoever it is in the Oval Office at that moment. He'll offer uh, the kind of Guidance and advice that only someone can offer who has sat in that chair and felt the weight of the kind of decisions that land on the president's desk, uh, and and I think he'll he'll his presidency of course is going to be defined by nine eleven. So those kind of issues will be will continue to be important with him, along with some of the domestic issues like education that he championed uh, mostly you know throughout his presidency, but especially uh, prior to nine eleven. So our mutual friend Mike
1: Burland, who likes to sort of coin. Uh, branding for all the people who he works with. I worked with him uh, back in early in the in two thousand when I worked at Penshoner, Berlin., uh, he's been a colleague of yours in some consulting projects. Uh, he says of Kevin Sullivan, uh, the only man in history to work at the highest levels of communications in the locker room, the boardroom, and the Oval Office. Uh, he's referencing, of course, your long tenure with the Dallas Mavericks from their founding, your work at NBC Sports, your work at, at uh, NBC Universal, and then coming to the White House. Uh, you, you were you were sort of the cleanup hitter at the White House. You you turned out the lights. What did you do right after that?
2: Well, after leaving the White House, and I certainly was part of a team, and there were a lot of people who who, uh, who were involved in in. in much uh, greater and more meaningful ways than than I was, but but uh, I was a member of the senior staff. It was a great honor and a privilege to have the chance to do that. And upon leaving there, I I started my own consulting practice to be able to take the experiences that I've had. I've been really really fortunate to get to work in things like sports, entertainment, television, uh, and then of course the experience at the Department of Education and then at the White House to to get a feel that that what public service can mean and a career in government and uh, in politics. So. Uh, try to wrap up all those experiences and make them available to my clients as, as best I can in a way that hopefully will will help them.
1: So Kevin Sullivan Communications, K dot com, and follow Kevin uh, at K Sully on Twitter. So Kevin, we don't talk a lot on polyoptics on Sirius XM about the optics of professional sports, but it's something that you spend a lot of time in. Obviously, uh, you can you need look no further than. What had happened? What has happened in the off season with the New Orleans Saints? Mm-hmm. Uh, to talk and look at what happened with uh, Junior Seau, uh, so unfortunate to have committed suicide, uh, and the issue of concussions that is uh, f- that the uh, NFL is focused on. In the NHL, uh, Dirk Bogard uh, and the issue of concussions. Uh, basketball, a wonderful playoffs that we're in the middle of, but a strike-shortened season. Um, What's the state of American sports optics today, and, and how are they dealing with the various issues that the various leagues and teams are facing?
2: You know, I, I think the the leagues and the teams deal with those issues, uh, you, you know, as best they can. But the point I would make about the state of sports is I don't think the fans care about that as much as they do about the games. And you know, TV ratings continue to go up. Uh, live sports is the one thing that's DVR proof. We've seen. Uh, advertising rights fees for for sports properties continue to go up and up. So, you know, I don't know where the where the uh, where the ceiling is because it, sports continue to grow in popularity pretty much across the board, in spite of some of those challenges uh, that you mentioned that are out there.
1: Except, you know, I I would say that I am the I am the world's most fervent Jewish northeastern bred NASCAR fan. <laughs> And NASCAR is having a little problem filling the seats, aren't they?
2: Well, they they have bounced back a little bit this year. They did have a three or four year period where TV ratings were down and the, the economy hit them hard. I mean, they lost sponsorship, a number of race teams, no more
1: twenty million dollar teams, right? right?
2: The 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 the, the, uh, the recession hit them really hard, probably harder than any sport because the it, it's an expensive enterprise to uh, to participate in, obviously. But but I think I think NASCAR is head, is back headed in the right direction too. Sully,
1: just like we have CNN. MSNBC and Fox, which are increasingly devoted to 24-7 coverage of politics. You've got Fox Sports, ESPN, NBC Sports that cover the action on the field, but also the atmospherics and politics and business that surrounds what happens on the field. So uh, there are so many similarities between politics and sports, and, and this sort of it hits exactly at, at what you're doing now in business but how do you sort of see the the parallels between the two
2: well there's a lot in common number one winners and losers and fans jumping on and off constituents jumping on and off bandwagons but the number one similarity is passion and emotion uh, it's personal you know a candidate that you pull for a policy that you fight for you you advocate for you, it's personal it affects you at home and you, and you really care about it sports has that 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 emotion that passion I'll tell you that from a communication standpoint, the biggest difference is message discipline. If you're the PR director for the New York Giants, the Super Bowl champions, you have a locker room of 50 players that you you can't tell each one of those guys what to say or what not to say or give them talking points or messaging. He can be available to help them. They have a great VP of communications in Pat Hamlin. He's got 50 guys. He's got 16 assistant coaches or whatever it is. He's got a head coach. He's got a general manager. He's got a team president. He's got an owner. Each one of them, at various times of the week are available to the media, and each one of them may have a little bit of a different take on things or a little bit of a different agenda than than the other one. Uh, so it's really difficult in sports to lock it down and and really be disciplined. And and when I went into the government and saw the the message machine and the way there were no leaks in the Bush White House, you know, in the two and a half years I was there and. And that 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 message discipline, getting surrogates involved is something that you don't see happen as much in sports. That third-party validation, but that message machine, uh, rapid response—you don't see that much in sports either. But but in this week, we saw a little bit of it with President Clinton and and Mayor Mayor Booker and in, in, in Newark and and uh, and Larry Summers, maybe not being exactly on line with what the White House uh, said. So it reminded me of. Of some experiences in sports where you just can't necessarily keep everybody in line all the time, as hard as we try. He, but President Clinton wasn't necessarily oil can Boyd, was he? <laughs> Nor was he Steve Carlton. You know the 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 mummy uh, who who didn't speak to reporters for a long time. But you know, it's just it's just one of those things that 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 uh, you that. Uh, the, the political process is so built around message and message discipline, and I, and I think that is a huge difference in the, the sports world where the personalities really do uh, run free, and and, uh, and it's awful difficult for a communications director to get everybody aligned because there's so many uh, people and so many different agendas.
1: In the modern locker room, the way a team controls uh, its image, what has been the trend between allowing reporters cameras and microphones into the actual dressing area of the players versus the controlled media availability with the planned step and repeat backdrop after the game
2: well there's much greater access in sports you know every day generally speaking either before or after practice the athletes are going to be available in fact I, you know i do quite a bit of media training and this year i remember being in the uh, in the spring training clubhouse of the Los Angeles Angels watching the reporters just kind of eavesdrop you know, they just can kind of hang around and listen to conversations that are taking place between uh, teammates at at their lockers on a, you know, a slow uh, day of spring training practice. And so they're just available all the time. Now, in the NFL, there's a real structure to it where the, you know, the coach is available one day and, and you know, there's the players are available on Wednesday or whatever, whatever it is. Uh, but I think, you know, the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, the the, the sports that play every day. Uh, there is enormous access to the players and coaches, and that that uh, is one of the differences, you know, between practicing the art of communications uh, in those uh, venues as opposed to in Washington. So taking to the next level,
1: people like Chad Ochocinco and others who realize that NFL, if you look at one version of the acronym, means not for long. They need to establish their brands and their careers post football. They're establishing Twitter followings of m- north of a million followers. And they are and they and they're pretty good communicators in their own right. How do you advise team owners and coaches and players about how to create the right reputation and personality through social media?
2: I, I tell them to use Twitter with a purpose. It's not texting it's 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 not uh, goofing off with your friends. The idea the purpose is to connect with the fans. and the studies show that when a fan feels that connection, you know a retweet is the digital autograph of of today. And when a fan feels that connection, they will be devoted to that player and that team. They'll buy tickets, they'll listen on the radio, they'll watch on TV, you know, they'll show up at the ballpark or the arena or the stadium. And and so I, I advise them, do it with a purpose. You know, talk about the things that the media won't necessarily talk about. Your your work in the community, be your own syndicator, be your own publisher. And of course there's lots of do's and don'ts about the right way to do it. But but the point is, is just have a game plan uh, to do it in a way that connects you with fans and potential fans, and for some players, sponsors and potential sponsors. Uh, you know, you mentioned the NFL. Their lifespan is three or four years for most guys. And so uh, showing that you've got a little personality in the appropriate way on, on social media is a way to to maybe get some endorsements or some broadcasting opportunities when you're playing days are over. As a person
1: who advises specific teams and players, uh, help our listeners understand because you do see some – very well-known players who excel on the court or on the field, and yet they're also tweet- tweeting 24-7. Are they doing the actual keying in, or do they have their posse or their people do it?
2: Happens both ways. There are, there are some that have other people do it. I think for the most part, Twitter is pretty authentic, and Facebook pages are, are farmed out, to, you know sourced out to a, a firm to, to, to do for these guys. But the reason you see so many mistakes is because they do it themselves. And the emotion after a game... Uh, you know, they insert themselves into other people's controversies. They they do something after a game they shouldn't do. Uh, you know, I always tell them if if you're if you're not uh, if you can't imagine this is a one minute press conference, picture the cameras in the back of the room and the notepads in the front of the room and the microphones. If you can't see it that way, and you're 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 not in the right frame of mind, give your give your your iPhone to your teammate for a few minutes because you can't undo it. Obviously, once it's out there,
1: that's right. The episode, the season, while he's having this amazing season. Dan Gronkowski uses his uh, his picture phone in the wrong way and pisses off Coach
2: Belichick, doesn't he? Well, he's supposed to have a sprained ankle and he's out at a disco, you know. So not a smart uh, not a smart move. These guys do do uh, a lot of good on Twitter. There are a lot of a lot of players that are good at it, uh, but the mistakes continue. You know, Richard Mendenhall basically taken up for Bin Laden it cost him his endorsement with Champion. Uh, big big fine. Uh, I could we could talk for for hours on on mistakes that have been made but there are guys that do a good job to do it as well Brandon Phillips with the Cincinnati Reds was a you know great player with a terrible image and he took to Twitter to almost on a retail one-on-one basis rebuild his relationship with the fans he has contests he meets people for lunch it's really interesting how how he has uh, taken that that idea that ma- you can make a connection and really really uh, played it out to the hilt so it was during the 1990s, and I'm thinking about uh, the
1: post-event press conferences that are happening in Major League Sports, I think a lot of NBA Finals, maybe some Masters, and the beginning emergence of the step-and-repeat pattern to get a visual message in in the picture during post-event press conferences. And I'm saying, I'm a big fan of Ronald Reagan. Uh, I like George Bush. I work for President Bill Clinton. And you can't distinguish between events that they're doing because they're always in front of a hotel-supplied blue drape. Why can't there be step-and-repeat patterns to help message projection in politics? I bring that into the Clinton administration. It's only advanced many-fold through people like Scott Sforza, Adam Belmar, Kevin Sullivan in the the Bush world. Uh, But you do see this constant pattern of politics learning from sports, sports learning from politics, because it is all about building and protecting your brand, isn't it?
2: That's right, and and I'll tell you the 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 notion of the perfect apology is something that sports could learn more from. I think in the in the world of politics, athletes get in trouble all the time, and and usually it takes them two or three times, or often it takes them two or three times to get the apology right, and that's not something that you see uh, as much. You know, Washington, there's that that long-standing tell it first, tell it all, and tell it yourself uh, discipline that that's there. Uh, so the two, the two fields learn from each other all the time. And I, and I think, you know, I've been asked by players, is it okay for me to talk about politics? Can I tweet about politics? And, and I always tell them no because, uh, and I had one team PR director when that question was asked in a group setting, he shouted over me and said, not till you're retired, figuring that half the people are going to be offended and just, you just don't want to do that. But uh, many of the players have a very keen interest in, in politics today and do watch, uh, you know, follow things pretty closely.
1: I know you do some work on the NHL, so you can uh, you can punt on this question if you want to. But the the case of my hometown Bruins goalie and his visit to the White House. What did you think of that?
2: You know, I, I thought Tim Thomas uh, was was wrong to do that. Speaking just not on behalf of the NHL, uh, who is a, which is a client of, of ours, uh, because when you're invited to the White House by the President of the United States, you should you should show up at the White House and. Uh, uh, if he wanted to make a commentary on uh, small government or the size of government, he could do that on his Facebook page. In fact, it would have been more powerful for him to do it at the White House. Can you imagine Tim Thomas at the stakeout w- with the White House press corps there uh, and using that opportunity to say, you know what, we had a great time today, and I respect President Obama, but let me tell you, personally, I really think government's gotten too big, Or, or and he could have taken it from there. I, I just, I disagree. When you're invited to go to the White House, you honor the office and, and, uh, and, and, and you show up, is my, my view.
1: So turning back to politics, sort of the big issue this week was the showdown in Wisconsin and whether that would be a guidepost for the Democrats toward November or for the Republicans. What's your take about now, now that Scott Walker has, has beat the recall election, uh, what that says about where we're headed in the fall?
2: Well, I think it means for the fall that Wisconsin is now officially back in play and is a, is a toss-up. You know, he, he won the recall election by a greater margin than he won his initial election. He he, back in 2010, he he uh, received more votes from union members in the recall than he did in 2010 when he got elected. So there's something there, uh, from a polyoptic standpoint. It was a fascinating night. You had a disappointed uh, uh, anti Scott Walker voter who slapped the Milwaukee mayor. On, on video, captured on video at his concession speech, we had uh, we had protesters outside saying this means the end of democracy. We had Scott Walker being given the label "survivor" for having gotten through this and really coming out of it stronger and, and energized. Uh, I think it was interesting. President Obama chose not to go there ahead of time, uh, and that may have been the first indication that there was there was trouble on the horizon because we know the White House has great polling. Even after Debbie Wasserman Schultz had said, this is a dry run for the great ground game we're going to have in the fall and those kind of things, they were talked a pretty good game going in, but obviously it, it, it didn't play out that way. So what we're
1: seeing now is a very active schedule, both on the part of President Obama moving around the country, fundraising, doing official events. Governor Romney moving around the country, fundraising, doing official events. A huge fundraising quarter for Governor Romney uh, shows up in... Texas one day, Missouri the next, this is not your prior campaigns where the candidates have sort of gone low once they secure their nominations to husband their funds. One of the reasons I think they do that, Kevin, is because in these quadrennial years when you hold an election, August is sort of off limits because so much of the focus of the airtime and the newspaper pages is not what's happening in U.S. politics. It's what's happening where in whatever city has been chosen to host the Olympic Games, right?
2: You know, Josh. Starting on July 27th, there will be a almost three-week roadblock where everyone's attention is focused on on the Olympic Games from London. NBC unprecedented coverage, including for the first time, virtually everything streamed live on the on the web. So we're, we're, we're fortunate to have with us today to take a look at the intersection of politics and the Olympics, the great uh, Olympic historian, uh, David Walashinsky. David, thanks for being with us today.
3: Thank you very much.
2: So we're under 50 days, July 27th, it all gets started. Uh, why is it, what is it about the Olympic Games that brings about some form of politics, political intervention seemingly almost every time?
3: The problem is that, uh, for, from the Olympic point of view, is that it's an international event. The whole world is watching, and I mean the whole world. Uh, every country in the world is following the Olympics because they like one sport or another. Consequently, it's a, it's a stage. Uh, if you can uh, make it a political point, you can't uh, think of a bigger audience than you could get than than people watching the Olympics.
1: David, growing up, uh, and we, we note that you're the son of... Uh, the, uh, the great author Irving Wallace, what was your first Olympic memory and how did you fall in love with the Games? <laughs>
3: uh, my father, uh, when he was a struggling writer uh, in the 30s, stumbled across Jim Thorpe, the, one of the greatest uh, athletes in American history. And he, uh, he won uh, gold medals at the 1912 Olympics and had them taken away because he had, he had played semi-pro ball. Um, baseball. And uh, so my father became a ghostwriter for Jim Thorpe. And my my father was obsessed with the Olympics. He raised me on Olympic stories, the dramatic ending of the 1908 marathon in London, etc. So when I was a little boy, he he took me to the 1960 Olympics in Rome. And I was completely hooked seeing uh, athletes from all over the world uh, march around the track uh, in the opening ceremony.
2: Now, many people think that the 1936 games where Hitler uh, produced the propaganda and really tried to steer things toward a, a Nazi message was the beginning of politics in the Olympics. But you, you say it goes back farther than that.
3: Definitely. Uh, the modern Olympics began in 1896. Um, from the very beginning, the royal families of the host nation and even the other nations would uh, make themselves, insert themselves in the process, the award-giving, they'd be standing on the finish line, uh, making sure that they were part of any joy that was uh, experienced by the populace. And even in 1906, there was one Olympics that was held not on a four-year basis, uh, uh, difference. In 1906 there were games held in Athens and the, the international press such as it was back then uh, who, who arrived were shocked one day when they looked outside their hotel room and uh, the Greek, uh, Greek army was shooting people to death, shooting uh, protesters to death. Um, meanwhile the, you know, the, the, the king of uh, Greece and other countries were um, waving at the crowd and being at the finish line of uh, sporting events.
2: You know, we're all familiar with in 1968 in Mexico City, the the Black Power salute with, with John Carlos and Tommy Smith. I, in just in doing a little research for this, I came across a, an item that in the, the 1932 Los Angeles Games, an Italian sprinter held up a, did a fascist uh, uh, symbol, a salute of some kind on the podium. Uh, so Mexico City was not even close to being the first time there was a protest from the podium.
3: Oh, that wasn't even a protest, though, because that was considered a national symbol. Um, for example, in the 1936 Olympics, which were in Berlin, uh, all the German athletes uh, gave the Nazi salute. In fact, so did other countries. Uh, athletes from certain other countries did as well, uh, you know, thinking they were just being nice to the host country. Um, hmm. But those, those uh, political statements were acceptable because they expressed a national symbol. Whereas uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 68, when they gave the Black Power salute, they were kicked out because it was not an accepted symbol. It was not a national symbol.
1: So, David, you were talking earlier about the experience you had with your dad going to Rome in 1960. And I think about my time growing up uh, in, the, in the late 60s and, and 70s and looking forward, every four years to the Olympic Games back when both games were held in the same year. And I had my own Olympic flag that I would sort of paste up in my den during, during the fortnight or the 17 days that the games were on. And I, I can't remember the feeling that I must have had in the summer of 1980 when President Jimmy Carter ordered the boycott of the moscow olympic games and then certainly uh four years later the or or, and then the favor was returned in los angeles but can you give us some perspective now from a from the present day how can a would a president ever order a boycott like that again
3: I think it would be very hard. Uh, that was not a popular um, uh, decision that Jimmy Carter made President Carter um, uh, mind you, uh, you know as a full disclosure, I wrote articles against it at the time, uh, so uh, you know he was uh, reacting to you know the the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and so he had a series of um, actions that he took one of which was to boycott the moscow olympics uh... at the time and i i will repeat it thirty years later i thought what the united states should have done uh... was uh, go to the olympics and uh... protest I mean, we're very good at that and we we could have done it there it would have been much more effective if people you know held up uh... you know afghan flags u.s flags, whatever uh, because the, communist, the way the communist government worked in the Soviet Union, they completely controlled the media. And so people in the Soviet Union had very little awareness of what the protest was about. I think that there was a sense after 1980 that um, this had backfired, first of all because it led to a, a boycott of the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles, and also because uh, the only people who suffered really were the athletes so you don't want to punish the athletes for something that their their government has done
2: you know this this year of course is the 40th anniversary of the the horrible tragedy in munich uh, with the with the murder of the israeli athletes uh, the ioc has made a decision as i understand it not to not to observe or commemorate that tragedy at all during the london games do you think that was the right call
3: uh i thought uh personally that uh, a moment of silence would have been appropriate um, there have been moments of silence before in the olympics for example and not even because of deaths that happened but also at um, the uh 1994 games i believe it was the winter olympics there was a moment of silence on the 10th anniversary of um uh, uh the sarajevo Yevo Games, because there was fighting going on there. Perhaps it was 92. And uh, so it's not like there was no precedent for having a moment of silence in honor of something a few years after it happened.
1: David, in terms of the coverage of the Olympics, those of us who have a memory just vaguely of the 1972 Games, and I was seven years old at the time, remember people like Jim McKay and how they turned from being an Olympics host to a news reporter? They, If they remember the the coverage of the book about Howard Cosell last year, you remember the controversy of whether Cosell would actually report on what was going on or be on the sidelines. But how do you think in terms of the way NBC, which has managed coverage of the Olympics over so many recent cycles, has dealt with the posture of having news professionals on scene during Olympics in case things happen?
3: it's a very difficult situation for example uh, in atlanta where you had a bombing and i uh... was very close to it. i walked across the spot not realizing of course sixteen minutes before the bomb went off heard the bomb uh... we immediately went into news mode and by the way there was a moment of silence uh... that the next morning before uh... each each event began at each venue um, there are certain, uh, excuse me for saying it, certain uh, financial considerations. For example, the last Olympics in Beijing, uh, this is a dictatorship. It's a, uh, I've been there many, many times. China is a wonderful people, wonderful country. It's run by a vicious communist dictatorship. I also write about dictators. And, uh, you know, NBC, even though they had a news crew there, absolutely did not want to talk about this uh, situation human rights when an american was murdered uh... it was something that wasn't really discussed and uh... nbc which once used to be an independent entity uh... is now owned by general electric which that year put five billion dollars worth of investments into china so you have uh... you know the nbc news crew is great but uh... they are under constraints by their bosses
2: you know, I, I had the uh, the the privilege of of going to Beijing with President Bush when I worked at the White House, and we, you know, we talk on this on this program about polyoptics and images, and and we had a situation there where Russia was uh, was invading Georgia, and the president. This was the first time a sitting president had gone to an overseas Olympics. That's right. And uh, and he wanted to go to support the athletes, and and of course, obviously, he had meetings, you know, with with. Uh, with uh, officials in China, and there was some diplomacy that that took place, and some he felt there were advantages to the U.S. for for him showing them the, you know, the courtesy of of going there, and yet we here we we had to balance from a communication standpoint, the, um, you know, the president giving a statement about how we oppose Russia's invasion of Georgia, at the same time he is seen it at athletic venues, uh, encouraging the athletes and and that sort of thing. It was it was a it was a a, a, a fine line that we had to walk in. And I think uh, President Bush walked it. But uh, And he did some things while he was there on the human rights front, like attend one of the House churches and uh, and, and spoke about that publicly. And, and his view was that he could accomplish more by going there, engaging with them than by insulting them with a stay-at-home protest. How do you think, looking back on it a few years later, all that uh, played out?
3: I think it was a terrible decision by President Bush because as you said no sitting president had ever attended uh, a foreign olympics you know so that not attending was not an insult to the host country it was simply precedent from what the united states has always done so that he made this exception that he broke the rule um... you know attending the olympics hosted by uh, a dictatorship was to me embarrassing as an american and also uh, uh... Vladimir Putin the president of uh, russia uh... took advantage of bush being there it was almost like taunting him by uh, in, engaging in warfare for georgia knowing that that uh, president bush as a guest of, of china couldn't do anything about it uh... so i thought that you know putin you know he he manipulated the situation and i i don't think it was necessary for a foreign leader to to go there i mean for an american or any other foreign leader to go to be present at the at the beijing games um... you see a situation uh... where the euro the soccer euro for for two thousand twelve uh, held in uh, poland and ukraine uh, many uh... european leaders uh... decided to not attend the games in ukraine because of the repressive nature of the regime right now.
1: moving forward david to two thousand two the winter olympics in salt lake city a wonderful part of the country had never hosted an olympics before um, and it, it ran into major management problems, fundraising problems, logistical snafus, construction problems. It needs someone to really put it together. But let's let's be let's be brutally honest with it. Is this something that Mitt Romney uh, had a, had a large effect on how the Olympics came out, or did he just sort of put a good polish on the final elements of putting the games together?
3: Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you a certain perspective on that. First of all, <clears throat> if I can praise the people of Salt Lake City, they were great hosts, and all you know the real work of putting that game together. Uh, uh, you know, all credit goes to the people of Salt Lake City, people of Utah. They just did a wonderful job. They were, you know, just you know, sure there were problems, but they did a great job. Um, there's a recent book I was reading about the two thousand and two. Uh, uh, scandal, you know, there was a, a bribery scandal, and um, and I noticed that uh, Mitt Romney appeared on one page in that book, <clears throat> you know, written from the point of view of the International Olympic Committee, um, from the point of view of the Olympic movement, which is you know what I'm uh, uh, more involved in. Uh, Mitt Romney was barely a footnote in the 2002 games. Uh, he he. You know, they needed a good face. He was the right person for that. He certainly did his job as he should have. He didn't make any mistakes, uh, did fine, did a great job. But the job was being done for him, the actual logistics, the fundraising. uh, There are probably 100 or more people who could have done the same thing. I'm not saying that he did anything wrong by any means, but it would be a wild exaggeration to say that he saved the Olympic movement or even saved the Salt Lake City Olympics.
2: David, what about looking ahead to London in terms of, potential political uh, issues that could come up or that, once again, that intersection of the Olympics and politics happening? What do, what's in store?
3: What, what concerns me about London, first of all, London, you know, the English and the British in general are crazy sport fans. So I, you know, I expect great, great uh, fans at every venue in any sport. So that's a really good thing. It's kind of like Sydney in 2000 uh but um what concerns me uh in london and actually almost any uh, olympics from now on is the threat of terrorism not at the games but at other places in the host city or country because if you look back at the two uh, uh, most recent violent incidents the bombing in Atlanta in 1996 the murder of an american in Beijing in 2008 neither of these incidents took place at a secure olympic venue they took place at a non-secured venue in the olympic city now obviously in london they have uh, enormous uh experience and and uh, sophistication in, in you know guarding against terrorism they have had plenty of opportunities unfortunately and so the the surveillance the the preparations are Uh, almost beyond what we can imagine so uh, I'm hoping that that's sufficient
2: before we wrap up David we should give you an opportunity to talk about allgov.com a uh, a a website that you've recently launched
3: yes uh, allgov.com what we do we call it everything your government really does we monitor 350 agencies of the US government what they say they do what they really do Biographies of the head of each of these agencies and departments written by journalists, not official biographies, and we do daily news uh, dealing with uh, all aspects of the U.S. government. Uh, it's almost uh, scandalous to say this, but it's nonpartisan. Uh, we just uh, last month uh, launched Allgov France, and later this month we're uh, launching Allgov California, which will be the first of 50 states.
1: Well, David uh, uh... Olympic historian, uh, allgov.com and creator, uh, along with uh, your parents, I guess, uh, uh, of the Book of Lists in 1977. That was a bible to this 12, year, this then 12-year-old boy uh, in the age before Wikipedia. Uh, you, you were Wikipedia to me, David. Thanks so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you. Jerry Weintraub, there is no adequate way to introduce you. I'll simply say giant of American entertainment, summer resident occasionally of Kennebunkport, Maine, dear friend of the 41st president of the United States, and Mort Engelberg, author (laughs) of When I Stop Talking, You'll Know I'm Dead. And with that, given that we're sitting across from each other and that you are very much not dead, I'll just welcome you to Polyoptics. I'll shut up and let you start talking. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, look, you've been on a roll, sir. I saw you on Morning Joe yesterday. I know from Susie that you're headed up to Kennebunkport tomorrow to to be with the 41st president on his 88th birthday uh, and to premiere this film Cinema Paradiso style. It must be a a great thrill for you to do this for your friend and also for President Bush to, to see his life on screen.
4: Yeah, well, it's a great honor and a great thrill for for a lot of different reasons. Uh, And my reason, I'll give you my reason first, and then we'll get to his reasons and everybody's reasons. Uh, He befriended me uh, 40-some years ago before he was in politics. And uh, I was a, a Jewish kid from New York City Uh, He was a patrician from, uh, went to Phillips and Yale from Connecticut, came from a very important family in the United States. I came from a very important family from Russia and Austria, and we couldn't have been more opposite, and yet we became extraordinarily close friends. And beside being close friends, he opened for me a door that i went through that i never it was like alice in wonderland or the wizard of oz it was it was an extraordinary journey and still is an extraordinary journey and because of of our closeness and and because he liked me and because i was always honest with him and he was always honest with me as opposite, as opposite as we were, we were very much the same. So that kind of a relationship is, is extraordinarily rare with people in general, but with a president of the United States, it's really rare. Now, had he been a different kind of uh, president, like most presidents I've known, and I've known presidents going back to Jack Kennedy, I worked for Jack Kennedy in 1959. You, uh, they're different than George Bush is. George Bush came from a family, and that's what the movie's about. Came from a family that his father was a senator, mother was a wonderful, wonderful woman. They were a very strong American family, traditional family. And he was never, uh, never a braggart, never told everybody how wonderful he was, he never set out to be president of the United States that was not in his DNA he set out to enjoy his family his life have a good life have a good wife which he got it 67 years now and they uh, created between the two of them this extraordinary
1: life for themselves and their children well as you talk about uh- president bush and his views about his mother let's just hear him in his own words in jeffrey roth's film that you're premiering next week
0: mother was a great inspiration she could do everything she was the fastest mother in the mother's races she was the best pitcher on the mother's softball team she was the best tennis player on her own right she was a good golfer and a loving mother she was just everything and everyone loved her
1: Mothers, when they get to the White House, uh, you think of Miss Lillian Carter. You think of uh, of Dottie Bush. You think of um, of uh, Barbara Bush, uh, Barbara Pierce Bush, when she was uh, mother to President George W. Bush. And certainly, when you think of uh, uh, Virginia, President Cl- Virginia Kelly, President Clinton's mother, they sort of become caricatures when they are sort of old ladies with their kids in the White House. But the way George Bush talks about his mother here, that those formative years, the way her, Prescott Bush was a, a great role model for him, but his mother would sort of embrace him when he fell. I loved the way he evokes this childhood in the film.
4: Yes, but she was a strong woman. She, was, she didn't just embrace him when he fell. She was totally involved with Senator Bush. I knew them with Senator Prescott Bush and totally involved in his in his life and his career like they weren't just women who stayed home and cooked and played tennis and golf they were involved people long before women were involved in politics and involved in, they were involved and his mother uh was an important part of his of his uh upbringing and and his uh, his father was gone a lot of his father worked and and he he has a great amount of respect for her i think but i think uh, uh bill clinton had the same thing yeah. for his mother Absolutely. and i think jimmy carter who's uh had his a certain respect for his mother it was different but, it would, but he had it and uh i th- and i know that george w bush has that kind of respect for barbara bush That's right. and so i think that i think that uh, that the family unit is a very very important part of what shapes people. I know that there have been uh, certain brothers of certain presidents that you don't want to remember, Billy Carter, Roger Clinton, that you don't want to talk about <laughs> or remember. But the fact is that that you know to have a strong uh, family group around you, I think prepares you and helps you for the presidency. Now, having said that, it's always important for me to make the point that he did not prepare himself for the presidency, in my mind, and I watched him all through those years. I watched him from the time he was a congressman to the secretary of the UN, 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 our ambassador to the UN, when he was uh, head of the CIA, when he was head of the Republican National Committee, when he was liaison to China when he ran for the Senate and we lost, when he would, when he uh, uh, won in the Congress, uh, when he used to go to Lyndon Johnson for advice, and he was a Republican, mm-hmm. and Lyndon Johnson was a Democrat, but a, probably maybe the best politician I ever met. So he, uh, he was an open man. And when I first went to Washington with him, years and years and years ago we went to an alfalfa club dinner in the 60s when he was a congressman and he he said and I watched him at the dinner and he was a first term congressman and every United States senator and every US congressman wanted to know him wanted to be near him wanted to know his opinion about things wanted to see where he was going and what he felt where the country was going. So I knew he was a leader. I didn't understand it at the time because I was a young kid and I you know it was way over my head.
1: But in retrospect I understand it. How did the Jewish kid from Brooklyn meet the patrician kid from Connecticut? How did the Weintraubs and Bushes become friends? He married a uh
4: patrician woman from Newton, Massachusetts, <laughs> who was friendly with the Bushes and took me up to Maine and uh because she summed up there, and and uh, introduced me to him.
1: You know, I'm from Woburn, Massachusetts. No, I didn't know. And there I am. Well, she's from Newton, Newton Corners. So within a mile, <laughs> right. Jane and me. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so, what year was this?
4: Uh, I don't know the year. It was uh, f- uh, forty-seven years ago, right. something like that.
1: So you've said in some of the interviews, and about, I'm only thirty-two. You're only thirty-two, <laughs> Jerry. Of course. How could I? How could I miss that point? Um, you, you've talked about how the Bush family and George H.W. Bush in particular helped introduce the Jewish kid uh, to Kennebunkport, Maine, and some of the traditions of Down East that might not have been so open to you. Can you talk about sort of... Sure, uh, it, was a,
4: it, it was a situation that existed. I, there, there were things in those days, not just in Kennebunkport, but in all, all over the East Coast, that were, had restricted clubs, they may still be around, I don't know, but they had restricted clubs. By restricted clubs, that meant if your name was Weintraub or Goldstein or Goldberg, you didn't get into those clubs. Or, for that matter, uh, uh, Joey Soprano or right. Cicillani or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you didn't have an American, if your name wasn't Smith or this or that, you didn't get into those places. They They were very closed. They wanted to just be with their own crowd. And I was not permitted in. And uh, Senator Bush, well George Bush, took me to meet Senator Bush and they invited me for tennis and they made me a member of the club. And not just the tennis club, but the uh, golf club and the marina and so on. And it broke all the barriers. But that's the kind of family they were. They were not, they were not in any way prejudiced, nor were they in any way, they, they were open. And he was open to me and, and I believe me, a lot of the things I did and said I'm sure shocked him at the time. And he said to himself, oh, listen to this guy. And then as time went on and I was a Hollywood producer and I became more and more famous or whatever that means, quote unquote, I became successful in my endeavors and I was with Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley and the Sanana and my and my uh, horizons expanded and his horizons were expanding in a, in a different world. but our worlds crossed and it was and, I, and he embraced it. And when he became vice President of the United States, which was an extraordinary accomplishment in itself to get president. Vice president was an extraordinary accomplishment, he the first dinner he and Barbara made at their home was in honor of me. And I remember like it was yesterday when he said to me. At the Naval Observatory? Yes. Yeah. And he came to me and he said to me, hey, we want to make a dinner in your honor. We want to make the first dinner at the House in your honor. You can have any guest you want there. Just name them. You Supreme Court justices, senators, you name them. And I said, well, I'd, I'd really like to have my mom and dad there. That would be, that'd be great. And he got up at the dinner on Earth again. there were a lot of very, very important people at that dinner the Secretary of State, the, the head of the Supreme Court, and he made a toast to me, and he said, "I want you to understand why Jerry Weintraub is my friend and why Jane is my friend. When I decided to make this dinner for them, Barbara and I decided to make this dinner in their honor." We asked them who they would like to have as guests. They could pick anybody they wanted and he he said he wanted to have
1: his mother and father there and that's exactly the answer that I would give. (laughs) So, if you're such good friends of the Vice President of the United States and you are looking down the barrel at uh, 1988 when he's running for President, I watched what Jeffrey Roth put in the film and it's almost like a time capsule. You can't imagine that presidential campaigns were ever that quaint as they were in the summer of, of 88 when Bush is facing Dukakis. M- my sense is that he was so much a- of not a aggressive politician that had he faced any better competition than the Duke from Massachusetts, my governor, he it would have been hard for him to win in 88, right? No, I don't think so.
4: I think that the uh... Uh, Bush is an aggressive politician. I don't, I, you know, I, I think President Bush was always an aggressive politician. He's very bright, and he's very smart politically, and he and he understands history. He's a history buff, and he reads a lot of history, and he believes history repeats itself. He didn't just by uh, get there by accident. It wasn't an accident. He didn't set out to be vice president. He didn't set out to be president of the United States. But we had a lot of very good people around us. We had the Willie Horton ad. Yep, Lee Atwater, not bad. Lee Atwater, pretty tough stuff. I mean, you don't get tougher than Lee Atwater. So we had a lot of help and a lot of great people around us. And, And I think Dukakis, you know, when I look back at Dukakis, I admire all these guys, you know. Yeah, sure. When you put yourself out there, absolutely, you know, somebody else is holding your coat, absolutely. And when you're ready to step into that arena and expose yourself to that world, and since you've been in it, you understand it. You're exposing yourself to that world. You deserve an inordinate amount of credit. Absolutely. Because it's tough tough duty.
1: But you are are a producer of talent. I mean, you go back to Led Zeppelin and Elvis and and Denver and the Ocean's Eleven series. You know when people can perform and when they can't. Bill Clinton could perform in front of a camera. Ross Perot, even in his way could perform Barack no. Obama no but I, I, I look. I, I heard what what the president said about well, Perot I, I'm film. saying it too <laughs> but you, but Jeffrey push puts this piece in the film about the Oval Office statement that President Bush does on the eve of the occupation of Iraq and he's being stage managed to p- put on his glasses and pull out the quote from from Saddam Hussein and my only point is I have great admiration for George H W Bush right I just think that he ran into a buzzsaw of performing talent in 1992. He he got in in 88, but he was no Reagan in terms of a, a man on the stage nor a Bill Clinton. Okay, so we disagree. So the, the fact
4: is that you don't have to be Reagan on a stage, and there's only one Reagan. Yep. And you don't have to be Bill Clinton on a the stage, there's only one Bill Clinton. And, and Bill Clinton's an extraordinary politician, and Ronald Reagan was an extraordinary politician. And... George Bush was an extraordinary politician. And he didn't run into a buzzsaw in 92. He ran into Ross Perot, who lied to him and took 20% of the vote. Yep. And that's what caused him the election. Without that, he would have won the election, would have walked away with the election. I don't care if he was. And, and this, you, the word stage managed yep. is, a, is a, a, a difficult word for me to handle because I stage manage everything. Yep. You know, that's what I do for a living. But you don't stage manage those moments. Those moments happen. Dukakis, wearing a, a hat in a tank, lost him the election. It was Absolutely. a visual look. Uh, if I could look at one thing that George Bush did visually, and I haven't had this discussion with him. Maybe I did. I might have had it. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But if he did one thing in that election that was upsetting to me, it was when he looked at his watch during the debate. So these little things, totally see you are astute politically and that's why I'm glad now that I came into this interview because I haven't done this in a very long time because I stay away from politics now, I really don't, I don't care that much anymore about politics except I'd like this country to succeed and I hope we get the best man in and hope we find the center right because if we don't find the center we're in trouble we can't go to the left and we can't go to the right we got to find the center so if we can do that that would be great but george bush i when people say to me was he a good politician is he a good politician uh he wasn't great on television he didn't connect like they talk about romney now you know they're, they're doing the same thing with romney now romney's up against one of the great orators I've ever heard. Obama's a great speaker. There's no question about it. He's a rock star. But he's got a lot of a lot of headaches ahead of him. That's right. A lot of headaches. And he is a rock star. He could lose this thing because rock star, just because you're a rock star doesn't mean you win the election. He's got an 8.2% unemployment rate. If it goes to 8.5, he's, he's toast. So, and if, and if he happens to put on a hat
1: like Dukakis' hat on, he'll be toast. So, you know, there's
4: only these little things that
1: happen. No, you're absolutely right, Jerry. You, you bring up the looking at the watch moment. There was the supermarket checkout scanner moment. Right. Uh, and, and as President Bush himself says in the film, he was hurt politically in 92 because of the theatrics of the 88 convention. In which he says, "Read my lips, no new taxes." And he says that it it hurt him in '92 not so much because he had a revenue enhancement, as he says in the film, but because he was so th- the one sort of out of character moment for George H. W. Bush on stage in the '92 convention was that that applause line, "Read my lips," and he talks about it in the film. Yes,
4: but let's 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 look at let's look at history a little bit. If you if you look at history. And you look at Bill Clinton, and you look at everybody you're talking about, yeah. and then go back to look. What, what is the first visual? I, I'm a visual guy. Absolutely, you know, too. I talk in visual terms. But what is the first visual you think about with George W. Bush? Mission accomplished. You see, you see a banner. It says mission accomplished. Mission wasn't accomplished. Therefore, he's going to live with that. That moment forever. Now, if you think for one second that George W. Bush uh, made that banner in the bottom of the White House himself and painted it and took it out to the ship and put it up, he did not do that. Somebody else, some groups, team. would have been team. me, Jerry. All right. In,
1: in a Clinton administration, it would have been me okay. thinking, well, boy, I'm going to get these okay. three words in the, okay. in
4: the shot. All right. So some team went out to that ship without discussing it with him, I'm sure, and without discussing it with whoever Karl Rove or whoever's his, his confidants were at the moment, and 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 put this banner up. This banner will live infamously in history. Somebody wrote those words for for George Senior, George George uh, Herbert Walker Bush. I don't know who, I really don't know who. I, don't, I have never discussed the words with him, the read-my-lips line. It was dramatic. It was as dramatic as you can get. And if there had never been any new taxes, read-my-lips, no new taxes, would have gone down in history as one of the great moments of, in political history. So you can't, it's, it's so hard to put a... a, a uh opinion in these things and i and i do i have watched and i have been around politics as you can see for a very very long time i'm a student of politics i love it I, I used to love it i don't love it so much anymore i used to love it i used to live you know 24/7 with it you can never really blame any one person in a political campaign or any one person for what is said, uh, you know, th- this wall will come down. Right. Be Ber- Berlin, yeah, I mean, all these these little things that happen on the way in a, in a president's life. Star Wars, I mean, you <laughs> you name these little little
1: moments and it it it's they aired up you know and, and absolutely it, and, and and the watch moment at the debate was not anything that he did that isn't a normal human reflex it was caught on camera and blown up it wasn't what no. he did listen your friend bill clinton who who i admire uh,
4: you know i think he's a, was a great president and a hell of a politician i don't know great president but even a better politician yep. is in a lot of trouble this week because he went on some show and he's and he said was stuff that he said that that Romney had a good uh, plan, Sterling, economy, business Sterling business career, Sterling business career, and he's in a lot of trouble. Cory Booker, who I think is a a fantastically new, exciting politician, with who is going to have a great career. I don't care what happens right now. I read an, a headline this morning that 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 said we're getting rid of Cory Booker. He's out. He's finished. So all of that. This stuff is just, it just piles, it piles it piles. But its I don't really think it's the candidate. And I don't think that you can take uh, George uh, uh, w, George Herbert Walker Bush and say that because he said no new taxes at the convention, that that's what caused him the presidency.
1: No, I, I think that's right. And he says in the film, I mean, that was a tough summer, the summer of 1992, Ross Perot grabbing grabbing that percentage of the vote, I think. I wrote it down. He says, I don't have anything to say about Ross Perot. uh, I think he cost me the election, and I don't like him. He
4: doesn't like him. I don't like him either.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Has uh, President Bush been able to screen the film yet? Yes. How does he like it? He He loves it. it. He's crazy about it. You know,
4: he loves it. He's not... As effusive as I am about things, when I say he loves it, he didn't jump up and down and say, I love it, I love it, I love it. I know this from my conversations with his chief of staff every day, Gene Becker, and him when he's talking to me. I know he's very happy with it. And I know he's glad that it's done. And I know he's glad it's going to be shown on HBO. And I know that he's proud of his life, and his legacy. And if you're 88 and a half years old and you're not as well as you were when you were 82 years old, and you have a son who was uh, president twice and another son who was uh, governor of Florida. Probably will be president someday. I don't know. Another son who was governor of Florida and and a terrific family and great nieces and great- Those family
1: reunion shots are amazing. They're
4: fantastic. But if you have all of that, and now you have this on top of it, this film which you're proud of and which you can see your life, and you're still not bragging, he's not bragging. That's a very important thing about this man. You know that he's one of the first, and I mean, may be the only president. When you call his office, they don't say office of the President Bush. They say office of George Bush. You know that Barbara Bush is the only First Lady I know who got rid of her Secret Service as soon as she left the White House. She could have had the detail for the rest of her life.
1: Let's hear a little bit about, in his own words, uh, George H.W. Bush's thoughts on first meeting Barbara Pierce, his future bride.
0: I somehow got up my nerve to ask her to dance uh, and uh, they started playing a waltz. I I can't waltz. So I sat out. And uh, we chatted, and uh, I called her the next day and took her out. Her father was a very successful publisher, head of McCall Corporation. I don't think the mother liked me very much, but the father did, which was important. And Barbara did, which was most important. And so we, we fell in love, old fashioned falling in love.
1: When Jeffrey made the film, the this, this sort of strains of the string instruments uh, moved throughout the hour and 40-some-odd minutes of it. Uh, what, what level of production involvement did you have in it and said this is the, a good kind of soundtrack for the film? I just
4: worked along with him and tried to help him get through it all because i have been there before, done it. And, but he, it was his vision, and, and he's a terrific young filmmaker, and I hope he has a hell of a career. He deserves it. And uh, anything I could do to help him, I will. He needed, you know, he needed a little fatherly help getting this thing done.
1: But it was, he's good. He's very good. Well, as a student of the presidency, you certainly have seen how every few years you see from PBS, The American Experience, A Portrait of the President, which is done by an eminent documentarian who tries to sort of play it straight, the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, of... The president's term. I had uh, the producer of uh, President Clinton's uh, American Experience on a few months ago, and as I told him, look, you've got a four-hour show in which the last two hours sort of focus on impeachment and Lewinsky, and this can't be the kind of thing that people who visit for generations to the Clinton Library in Little Rock would want to take home as as a good compilation of the president's life, going back to time in, Hope's, in Hope, Arkansas, and the hard scrapple origins that he lived. This, on the other hand, would, is is a gorgeous album of the Bush family, in President Bush's words. And while presidents are often tempted to put pen to paper, as you did in your book, uh, collaborate on something that's going to sit on a shelf, this is the kind of thing that future generations can view in a timeless way, isn't it?
4: Absolutely. And and I think students in schools will you know what What they're going to get from it in my opinion at the end of the day not so much the presidency that's, that's that's a really small part of this movie which is what's interesting about it and that's who he is the presidency was a part of his life as not a small part of important part of his life but he had a whole big life before it and he's having a whole big life after it so and, and the presidency was a job on the road it was part of the road part of the journey so i think they're going to get that from it and i think that's important and i think it's important for young people in this country to to get that sense of service and that sense of belonging and that sense of family you know we've lost that in this society we truly have we've lost it in a lot my new book that i'm writing is about uh because of uh society that we live in the Christian society that we live in we discard people at a certain age when they're 70 or 60 or 65 or 72 whatever it is we discard them in the Buddhist society they don't do that the Buddhist society they make them teachers in the Hindu society when somebody's 65 or 70 they do what they say they send them back to the forest and they go to the forest, they could go for a day or two days or five years or a week and they relive their lives and then they come back and teach everybody. And I'm 74 years old now, I'm going to be 75 in September and I'm doing three movies, three major motion pictures, three television shows, four movies, three television shows and I'm busier than I've ever been and and my book is about the fact that What's happened to me now, and what I think happens to people like George Bush, what's happened to me now, that the young people around me in their 20s and 30s and 40s who have read about me and who know my work and who, have, who live my work, uh, want to hear about it, and they want to come to me for advice, and they want to work with me. They're not discarding me. They haven't discarded me. I'm as relevant or maybe more relevant than I ever was. And I know things now that I never knew, like a surgeon who's operated, done the same operation 75,000 times. He knows exactly where to put the knife. I know where to put it.
1: <laughs> You're listening to our conversation with Jerry Weintraub on XM Polyoptics, politics of the United States. Jerry, some of the most iconographic polyoptic images of the last 50 years, Involved people that you work closely with. It was the sheen that Frank Sinatra gave to Jack Kennedy or vice versa in, uh, as Kennedy made his march toward the presidency and in those few years in which he was in office. And conversely, this iconographic image of Elvis in the Oval Office with President Nixon. Given your knowledge of both men, Sinatra and Presley, and the intersection with the presidency. We've been talking about your relationship with George H.W. Bush and and things that have come since, but bring us back in time to what it meant for Hollywood to intersect with the presidency.
4: Well, first of all, Hollywood and politics and Hollywood and Washington have always intersected. They, they just they kind of find each other for whatever reason. As far as the iconic moment of Elvis in the Oval Office in his jumpsuit getting a badge from Nixon as a drug enforcement agent uh, I think that was uh, way over the top and uh, I don't think it really meant a heck of a lot. I don't know if Elvis really knew where he was at the time and for Nixon it was a good photo op, you know Elvis a very popular guy and taking a picture with Elvis Presley for a guy like Nixon, who was not a man of the people necessarily, it made him a man of the people. Maybe it made him more popular in certain parts of the country. As far as Sinatra and uh, and Kennedy were concerned, those were the years of Camelot, and uh, it was a natural. There was a natural affinity between Sinatra and Kennedy. I don't think Sinatra brought. Any big sheen, shine to uh, Kennedy, uh, Kennedy may have brought more more of it to Sinatra than Sinatra brought to him, and and I and at the end of the day, I don't know if George Clooney going to help Barack Obama or hurt Barack Obama, and I don't know if uh, Anna Winter is going to help Barack Obama or hurt Barack Obama. So I all these these alliances that seem to form between my world and the political world are sometimes I think overblown in people's minds. I don't think people vote for a president because it's an actor tells them to or not. Now, having said that, it's very, very important to know for you to know that I feel that George Clooney is very astute politically and I feel that he should have his say, like everybody else, and, you know, I told that to Bill O'Reilly when he said to me, what about these Hollywood liberals? I said, what, I said, what about you crazy conservatives, you know? That's not, he's allowed his view, point of view. We live in a free country. That's what makes America great. And I think that, that uh, actors should be able to say what they want to say and do what they want to do and go out and raise money for who they want to go out and raise money for. And I think it's all, all, it's all a lot of fun. But I don't think that's what wins elections. And I don't think Elvis uh, did anything very important for Nixon except it was a good photo op. And I don't think that uh, Frank did
1: anything that important for, for uh, Kennedy except good photo ops. Good photo ops are what polyoptics are all about, sir. <laughs> Jerry Weintraub, giant of American entertainment, as I said at the beginning of our conversation with him, Thanks so much for spending some time with us on Polyoptics. Safe travels as you head up to Kennebunkport. Best wishes to the president. Have a wonderful premiere and a great show on HBO beginning on June 14th. Can't wait to see it again.
4: Thanks so much. I really do appreciate it. I had a great time.
1: That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124, POTUS politics of the united states missed any previous episode find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on twitter at polyoptics keep your eyes on the visual think about how it moves you and we'll talk about it next week thanks for listening i'm josh king and you're on potus